Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I actually had some goals with this sermon this morning. One of those would be that in your future study and reading of the book of Revelation, you would have a better understanding of the context and how to interpret what's going on in the book of Revelation. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I also hope that you come away with a message of hope because ultimately when we get into the themes of the book of Revelation, uh, it's not as scary as we may think. Well, let's start in chapter 1 in verse 9. And I'll have the scripture up there so you guys can read it and follow along with me. It says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Hey, uh, sound team, would it be better if I just use this mic? I'm hearing a lot of sounds. I don't know. You don't know? All right, I'll keep going. I don't know where Peter went, but I'll catch up with him. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation before, you may have had some of the same questions that I had, particularly the first time that I read the book of Revelation. And that is, what does all of this mean? Because a lot of the imagery that we read about in the book of Revelation, it can be confusing and difficult for us to understand. And I think, you know, you'll have some churches that just try to stay away from the book of Revelation. Like, maybe let's just not talk about it. Um, Because, you know, maybe people have strong opinions or whatever it is, or it's confusing. Other times, maybe people talk about it too much or try to give certain interpretations. Throughout the ages, there have been numerous attempts to solve the mystery of Revelation. You know, what is the name of the beast? What is the mark? When will these events start happening? Sometimes these attempts are misguided. Other times it seems a deliberate attempt to cash in on anxiety and confusion about the end times. If you've been in in church for a while, you can probably think of a book or a movie or something that happened about the the book of Revelation and it was a big fad for a while and then it kind of disappears. You know, we've had a lot of people who've tried to predict when the end would come. They got out their calculators and the Bible and they started crunching numbers and, oh, I figured it out. I've decoded the mystery. And then the day comes and goes, oh, I made a mistake. 
Well, uh, if I adjust this number over here, and uh, oh, it, was, it was a lunar calendar. It wasn't a solar calendar that I should have been going on. You know, it creates a lot of confusion, and sometimes it creates a lot of fear. I had a prof once say that if we had a left-behind book at home, that we should throw it in the garbage. I don't think that's a very nice thing to say. You should recycle it. You know, a few years ago, about a decade ago, you'll remember there was some hype around this thing called the Four Blood Moons. And there was a couple books written about the Four Blood Moons. And there was a documentary created about the Four Blood Moons. And for the low price of $12.99, you could purchase the soundtrack to the documentary about the book about the Four Blood Moons. Now, you got to ask yourself the question, if the world is going to end, I don't know why you need the soundtrack to the documentary about the book, but uh, it was there for sale. Somebody was cashing in. Well, the truth is that uh, the predictions around the four blood moons were were very vague and unclear. What was going to happen with these four blood moons? Well, they weren't totally sure, but something was going to happen that was going to affect something else that was going to happen that had to do with the end times. And when the day came and went, they were convinced that that thing happened, although they did not know what that thing was or when it happened or what it would affect in the future. You can see how it, it, it spirals into more confusion, fear, and anxiety. The reality is that the Apocalypse of John, so the book is called The Apocalypse of John, the word is derived from the Greek noun apocalypsis, meaning revelation, disclosure, or unveiling. That is the disclosure of unseen heavenly or future realities. But the thing is, you don't have to speak Greek or know anything about Greek. You can just think about the word revelation. When somebody says they've had a revelation, that means that they're seeing things more clearly. That means that they've been given a vision or an understanding that has helped to clarify things. And they now know where they're going, right? Unfortunately, revelation interpretations are often based in our modern language, culture, and historical context. However, revelation can only be understood within its proper context. So what is the context of revelation and how will this help us to better understand its theme and message? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand the book of Revelation in its biblical context. What do I mean by that? Well, the book of Revelation, it's not random. It fits within the larger biblical narrative. In fact, the book of Revelation is deeply interconnected with the rest of Scripture. I've got an illustration up there, and it demonstrates the Bible cross-referencing other parts of the Bible. If you go to the next slide you can see that there's over 340,000 Bible cross-references. That means that one part of the Bible references another. If it's above the line, I think it says uh, it's, it's targeting something in the, in the future of the Bible, and it's going backwards at the bottom of the line. But 340,000 cross-references in the Bible. That means that the Bible is deeply interconnected And the book of Revelation has over 1,000 allusions, parallels, and quotes. More than any other New Testament book. And it actually references the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. So if we want to understand the book of Revelation, 
we have to understand it within the context of Scripture. It's deeply interconnected to the rest of the Bible. And the more familiar that we become with our Bibles, the more we'll start to notice things as we read throughout the book of Revelation. Oh, that's from Daniel. That's from Ezekiel. That's from Isaiah. Now, I want to confess that I have not found all 1,000 of these quotes, allusions, parallels in the book of Revelation, but I have started to notice more and more where they can be found. But that leads us into our literary context of the book of Revelation. See, the book of Revelation is written in a way to communicate certain things, and it's using these literary techniques to help us understand First and foremost, Revelation functions as the denouement of the Bible. My high school English teacher will be so proud of me right now. The denouement is the final part of a play, movie, or narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved. So we've got this entire biblical story The story of the Bible that's going from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And what is the book of Revelation doing? It is wrapping up all of these loose threads. See, if we think about Jesus' death and resurrection as the climax of the story, the beginning of the new covenant and the new kingdom has taken place, but there's still a lot that's unresolved, right? There's still suffering and pain and brokenness in our world. And the book of Revelation is taking all of these loose threads that go all the way back to Genesis and starting to tie them together. Once again, this is why we need to be familiar with our Bibles if we're going to approach the book of Revelation. I think about, uh, I took my brother-in-law to see one of these Avengers movies. And it was connected to, you know, a decade worth of movies that they'd been making. And I couldn't find anybody else to go with me, but I wanted to go watch this movie because they'd suckered me in and I was, I want to find out how the story ends. So I invited my brother-in-law, but the problem was that he hadn't seen any of these movies before. So he said to me, hey, does it matter that I haven't watched all these other movies to know where the story's at? I said, ah, it's probably not a big deal. We're in the theater about three minutes into the movie. He's like, who's that? What's that person doing? What's going on? It was so confusing for him. And I think a lot of people that are, you know, they want to flip open their Bible and skip straight to the end and figure out, how's this all going to end? It's going to be equally confusing for them. They haven't been following along with the story. The second thing is, is recapitulation. I know we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but what is recapitulation or progressive parallelism? They function like different camera angles looking at the same events from various points of view. One of the reasons that Revelation can be confusing is because you start to read it and you're thinking, wait a minute, did that just happen? Or is that happening again? Or is this happening a second time? What is going on here? Well, oftentimes what's happening is that we're seeing things from a different angle. So imagine it like, you know, a sports game, right? Uh, The Super Bowl. Sometimes the Super Bowl has over 170 cameras operating that are broadcasting the game from different angles. And so as you start to see things from different angles, the story starts to build and fill out. And things can look totally different from a different angle. I was going to use a certain picture of a 2004 Stanley Cup playoff game six game. Some of you may remember, but the wound is still fresh. 
if you know, you know. So we didn't, have, but you know, seeing things from a different angle can uh, recontextualize the story. The, the third thing, and I promise uh, English majors are probably following me right now. Some of you guys are, what's going on? Is a chiasm or a chiasmus. And that's a literary device in which ideas are presented and then subsequently repeated or inverted in a symmetrical mirror-like structure. This happens a lot in the Bible. Got a little diagram here. You'll see it in the Psalms and the Proverbs. So it's like line one is A1 and then it goes B1, C1, D1 and then it goes D2, C2, B2, A2. So it's resolving what happened on the line above but it's doing it in a mirror-like structure. Now, if you're like me, you know, when I was in high school and I was taught how to write essays by my English teacher and my social studies teacher, the way it worked is you come up with your thesis, then you got your three points, right, A, B, C, and maybe if you want to go deeper into your points, you got A, and then it goes A1, A2, A3, then B, you know, you got your outline and everything. And in a lot of Western writing and a lot of English writing, this is how we operate. We like things to progress in a linear fashion. We want it all spelled out for us. But as we read throughout our Bibles, not just in the book of Revelation, but in many other parts of the Bible, they're using a different literary style to communicate something that we should be paying attention to. Now, once again, you don't have to have a PhD to start picking up on some of this stuff. You just have to pay attention. You'll start to notice it, right? Finally, Revelation makes use of symbolism. At every turn, the author uses the resources of poetry, imagery, metaphor, simile, and allusion. Not illusion, but allusion. The most important thing to know about the literary form of the book of Revelation is that it uses a technique of symbolism from start to finish. Instead of portraying characters and events directly, much of the time the author portrays them indirectly by means of symbols. For example... Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. Churches are portrayed as lamps on lampstands. And Satan is portrayed as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The symbols are sometimes familiar and sometimes original and strange. Whenever a work of literature presents a preponderance of symbols instead of realistic details, readers should recognize the technique of symbolic reality. Meaning that as they enter the work in their imaginations, Information is presented primarily through symbols. So think about that for, this, for a second. These churches are being represented by lampstands. Now we struggle with this because once again, if, if you grew up like I did in a modernistic, rationalistic culture, you've got things that are symbolic or things that are real, but it's hard to put those two together, have a symbolic reality. So this lampstand is a symbol for something that is very real, which is the churches that are in these cities. But there may be deeper meaning to that symbol. For instance, think about what does a lampstand do? It lights up the darkness around it. So throughout the book of Revelation, we're seeing this symbolic language that represents something that is very real, but may have multiple layers of deeper meaning. Finally, there is the historical context of the book of Revelation. The first thing that we need to understand is that these seven churches that the book is addressed to, they live in the Roman Empire. I got a picture here. That's the Roman Empire in 117 AD. 
2,000 years ago, the world was ruled by Rome from England to Africa and from Syria to Spain. One in every four people on earth lived and died under Roman law. And it's a world that I think is difficult for us to understand, even if we read about it in history textbooks. We have a lot more freedom than the people of Rome did. And inside the Roman Empire, only the citizens of Rome were the ones that really had privileges. You know, there, there, I, I, some estimates, sometimes people estimate that there was a point in Roman history where the city of Rome had about uh, uh, 10 times as many slaves as it did citizens. And so it was a harsh reality for people to live under Roman rule. And remember, this fits into the Gospels. When we're reading about Jesus and the Jewish people of his time, they live under the rule of the Roman Empire. And it at times can be brutal. And that leads us to these seven churches. Now I've got a picture here of these seven churches according to uh, Google Maps where they would be located today. Revelation is addressed to first century churches in seven cities of the Roman province of Asia, now western Turkey, as representative of all Christ's churches. Now once again, uh, the number seven in the Bible often represents completion or totality. Now are there churches outside of these seven churches? Yes, they are. But these seven churches, which are real churches, are functioning as a picture of the, the, the entire church. Now, these churches were threatened by false teaching, such as that of the Nicolaitans. That's Revelation 2.6. Persecution, Revelation 2.10. Compromise with surrounding paganism through idolatry and immorality, Revelation 2.14. And by spiritual complacency, Revelation 3.1. Jesus sent his revelation to John to fortify his churches to resist the wiles of the devil, whether in the form of intimidating violence the beast, deceptive heresy, represented by the false prophet, or beguiling affluence, represented by the prostitute. And it's interesting because this goes all the way back to Jesus talking about uh, the farmer that went out and sowed the seeds, right? And the different things that came along and stopped those seeds from growing. So we've got these seven churches they live under Roman rule and times are getting hard as they go out and they spread the word and the gospel. The third thing is the new covenant. This brings us back into its historical, biblical, and really theological context of the book of Revelation. Now there's some debate, had Jerusalem been destroyed when the book of Revelation was written or was it destroyed after the book of Revelation was written? We're not totally sure. But Jesus had prophesied that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Remember when Jesus wept outside Jerusalem. He knew it was coming. Remember when he said that this temple was going to be torn down. Remember that when he died, the veil inside the temple was torn. See, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And by fulfilling it, Jesus ushered in a new covenant. So no longer did you have this system of laws and rituals. Remember that Jesus told the woman at the well in John 
that there was coming a day where you wouldn't have to go to the temple or to the mountain, but that you would worship God in spirit. So these believers, God's people, no longer had a geographical or a physical location. There was no building that they needed to go to. The church is the new temple, and it holds the Holy Spirit of God. And they've now scattered across the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. Now, we'll get into it a little bit more, but this is creating a lot of tension. Now, let's look at, back at Revelation chapter 1, and we'll talk about some of the themes. Starting in verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what are some of the major themes that we find in the book of Revelation. Well, the first theme that I want to point out is that Jesus knows our suffering and calls us to persevere. Now, once again, I think it's kind of difficult to understand the suffering of the first century church from our modern Canadian perspective. But let's dive into a few things. Remember, in in, in chapter 1, verse 9, John says, I, John, am your brother and your partner, in suffering. It's interesting that he chooses to open his letter describing himself as his, their brother in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. So John's been exiled to this island of Patmos. He's on this Roman prison camp for following Jesus. And he's saying, I share with you in suffering for Jesus and in patient endurance. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. What's going on here? Why is, is Jesus saying this? Well, remember, God's people are under a new covenant. And so these disciples, many of them who are Jewish, they've gone out to these synagogues and they've started preaching and teaching about Jesus and the gospel. And some people have received this gladly and they've joined them. They've joined the church. But others have rejected it and there's others who've gone even further who are actively persecuting them. Now there were times in the history of the Roman Empire where Jewish people were given a certain exemption from religious practices. So they were allowed to practice their religion and oftentimes abstain from religious ceremonies that were mandatory for others to attend. So they would have these ceremonies where people would have to come and they would have to offer incense to Caesar. And they would have to confess that Caesar is Lord. But if you said that Jesus is Lord and rejected that, it could cost you 
It might cost you your business, your ability to buy, sell, and trade. It could cost you your home. You might be thrown in prison and you might lose your very life. And the Romans had invented a lot of horrific ways to end people's lives. So the threat for the early church, it's very real, it's tangible, it's physical. Jesus goes on to say, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? So the martyrs are gathered here. They're in this place of rest and they're crying out to God, God, how much longer will you allow this to happen? How much longer will you allow those who hate you, who are in rebellion against you, to kill and murder your people? And look what it says next. It says, Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. So God's saying, I know, I hear you, and yet there's more people who are going to be martyred, more people who are going to be joining you very soon. So Jesus knows our suffering and has called us to patient endurance. And that's the message to these seven churches. But the second theme is that Jesus is sovereign. Remember, he says in chapter 1, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. See, we see... Throughout the book of Revelation, beings or people who have some kind of power. And so for the early church, they're living under the power of the Roman Empire. Caesar has power over them to take their lives, to take anything away from them. And Jesus is saying, I have the real power. I have the keys to death and the grave. And nothing that they do is outside of my sovereignty. In 5.13 it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. We sang some songs this morning, Worthy is the Lamb. The third theme is that God will restore creation. Jesus will restore his creation. If we skip to the very end here, we go to chapter 22, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, 
with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. This is going all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember, in Genesis, we start with a garden and a mandate that's given to Adam and Eve, that's given to human beings to go out, to be fruitful and multiply, to steward God's creation. And we all know that the the plan falls off the rails in all sorts of terrible ways. And throughout Scripture, we read about the implications of sin. Sin begins to multiply on the earth. But here we get a vision of God restoring his creation. We have this garden city. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, I think there's a few reasons why we might struggle with the book of Revelation. If you think about for the early church, for those seven churches and the suffering that they were enduring and living under the the rule of the Roman Empire, I mean, what an incredible picture. What an incredible image. That this is going to be the future. There's not going to be a curse on anything. There's going to be no pain or suffering. God's going to live with his people. He's going to reside with us. We'll finally be at peace. We'll experience the full joy of God. His light is going to shine on us. But for some of us, in a modern context, maybe things aren't as bad. And maybe we think, yeah, you know, this is really great. It sounds great, but, uh, you know, maybe just living a little bit longer would be good too. Maybe we're comfortable where we're at. I'll be honest with you guys, I love comfort. I love being comfortable. We just moved into a house, got everything set up. It's very comfortable. You know, we got the, got the couch set up and, and we got this big beautiful window in the back and it looks out into the backyard and we've got these awesome trees everywhere. And I'm sort of imagining sitting there, uh, reading a book, having my, my mug of tea, watching the snow fall or the leaves fall. Or both at the same time, because that's what Calgary's like. You know, I like to be comfortable. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe the end of the world, I mean, it's going to be good and all that kind of stuff, but maybe a little while longer. I think it depends where you're at this morning on how you might read or react to some of this. I think another thing is when we look at the book of Revelation, it might conjure up certain fears for us. Fears about the end. Fears about certain things that are unknown. Because remember, we're getting a little snapshot here. But some of us might walk away saying, you know, I wish there was a lot more written there. And we see this theme take place over and over in the book of Revelation. If I had a, a takeaway for you, it would be, do not fear. Don't be afraid. This book was not written to conjure up fear and anxiety in us. In fact, it's the opposite. It's that we can place our trust in Jesus, no matter what we're facing. So for the early church facing the suffering, or those of us who are maybe tempted by comfort and affluence and prosperity, or we're just sort of lulled to sleep by it, 
This book is meant to awaken us to the reality that Jesus is sovereign, that he has a plan to restore his creation. Now remember, when Jesus was ushering in the new covenant, he gave his disciples a ritual to follow. We call it communion. At the Last Supper, Jesus left his followers with this ritual, a shared meal to participate to remember him, to remember his suffering and his resurrection and glory and to persevere and stay unified no matter what they faced. I think that when we go about our daily lives, whether we're experiencing suffering or whether things are going really well, you know, we start to forget. We need to come together and be reminded and to share in the bread and the wine and to celebrate what Jesus has done and to demonstrate that we are unified. You know, one of the things that the Roman Empire was so afraid of about Christianity was that it unified people from all kinds of different backgrounds. So there were slaves and there were free people. There were people that spoke different languages and came from different tribes. There were people that had historically been enemies that were uniting together around Jesus. And the Roman Empire was so afraid of that because they didn't want anything else to unite people except Rome. They wanted Rome to be the beginning and the end of people's lives. And so this kingdom, this new kingdom that was growing inside their empire, was an existential threat to them. And the irony is that the Roman Empire fell centuries ago. And yet the kingdom of God still marches on to all parts of the world. See, I was always taught that there would be this time of trials and tribulations that Christians would face, you know, sometime in the future. But as I read the book of Revelation, and as I look at our history, I see that ever since Stephen was martyred in the book of Acts, up until now, Christians have been persecuted all around the world. We still have brothers and sisters who live in in different countries or nations where it's not safe to go out and say Jesus is Lord. Where you can't just walk to church on a Sunday morning or even have your own building. And yet the kingdom goes on. God is still at work. So when we come together this morning and we celebrate communion, we're not just celebrating with one another, we're not unified with just one another, but with a global church that goes all the way back to the book of Revelation until now. And we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus that he's going to restore his creation. Let me just pray for you and then I will invite up our communion team. God, we thank you that when we turn to your scripture, we find a message of hope and not fear. And God, I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I think people could be in all sorts of different places in their lives. But I just pray that your spirit would comfort them this morning. 
that your spirit would draw close to them. I pray that you would remind all of us, God, that you have a plan for our lives, that you have a purpose for our lives. Show us how you want to use what you've given us, whether that's freedom or resources or whatever it is, to build and honor your kingdom. We thank you for all that in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.